Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to learn about the 2006 movie called One Night with the King, directed by Michael Sajbel. One Night with the King tells the biblical story of Esther, a woman who hides her Jewish identity when the Persian king Xerxes comes looking for a queen. After she is selected, she risks her own life to save her people. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, I'll be joined by an Old Testament scholar who is a fellow in the Center for Pastor Theologians, Dr. Michael Lefebvre. That's right. Michael is also my brother, and we've talked about having him on the show for a while, so I am super excited to get to chat with him today. Before we bring Michael on the line, though, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them, one of them is an all-out lie. <laughs> you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, there was a huge battle between the Amalekites and the Persians in the book of Esther that we don't even see in the movie. Number two, Esther's husband, Xerxes, is the same king who fought the 300 Spartans. Number three, Esther was not her original name. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to identify which one of those is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Michael Lefebvre about the historical accuracy of One Night with the King. We'll get into some of the details of the movie, but looking at the movie from an overall perspective, how much would you say is accurate? Is it over 50%, less than 50%, kind of a, a ballpark range there? That's a really hard question to answer, actually. <laughs> uh, of course, there's actually two levels of it. You know, How accurate is it to history and how accurate is it to the Book of Esther? Um, because the Book of Esther itself an artistic interpretation and summary of historical events. So there's a whole lot of scholarship that engages in, you know, the questions of, of how the book relates to history. So all I can really comment on here is how well the movie relates to the historical representation in the book. And uh, clearly they took a lot of artistic license. And clearly there's no, you know, they're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes because they know most of their audience have read the book. So they're not trying to do anything tricky, but they have taken a lot of artistic license. There's lots of stuff they've added in that's not in the biblical story. This Jesse fella, uh, Esther's friend, is a totally invented character. The whole home scene is invented. A lot of the backstories of the various characters are invented. So there's a lot that's added in that's not part of the biblical story. There's also a number of things that have been changed. For instance, when Esther goes before the king and then invites the king and Haman to a feast, she actually at that feast then invites them to another feast. And the way that all unfolds is actually not consistent with the story. We'll probably get into that further along. So there are a lot of things that are changed as well for various dramatic reasons and so forth. The structure is clearly based on the book, but how accurate it is to the book 
you know, how to grade it. I think I'm going to take the diplomatic approach and say it's 50% accurate. <laughs> okay. because, because obviously the structure is fair, but they take a lot of license in how they retell the story. Well, it's interesting mentioning you know, to the book because uh, one thing while I was preparing for this interview, I noticed that it, it is a, you know, biblical movie, but it's based on a different book that's actually a novel uh, from Tommy Tenney and Mark Andrew Olson. So it seems to be yet another step removed from the interpretation. So I wanted to ask you about some of the main characters that we see. You mentioned Jesse, but there's, you know, Hadassah, her her uncle Mordecai, King Xerxes, Prince Admantia, uh, Prince Mimikon, uh, Haman. Were they all real people? Unfortunately, I haven't read that novel you mentioned, which would be interesting. I'd like to see how how they did with it uh, compared to the movie. But um, so the book does name a lot of characters, but they're kind of just flat cardboard characters. They're just sort of names dropped in at points. And so to create the story from the movie, they give personalities to those characters. Hmm. Some are invented. Like I said, Jesse is invented. Rebecca, I think, was the name of the housekeeper, is invented and so forth. But the princes and courtiers are names in the book, but uh, but they don't have the, the, the backstories and personality that the movie uh, kind of invents for them. Okay, okay. At the beginning of the movie, we do see a scene where the prophet Samuel sends King Saul of the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites. They're ordered to leave no one alive, but King Agag's wife survives. And that's how the movie sets up this sort of revenge concept that King Agag's uh, descendants will want to destroy the Jews. The movie doesn't really explain really about why this conflict started. It just suggests that the Amalekites were child sacrificing enemy, which is horrible, but I'm also guessing in that time, it probably wasn't really unique to the Amalekites. There were some pretty horrible things that were going on around the world. But it makes me think that there must have been something that the movie doesn't explain. Can you set up some context, historical context around this tension between the Jews and the Amalekites? Yes, although that's one place where the movie takes a lot of artistic license. But it's not unique. It is actually, um, so Haman is called in the book an Agagite. And so Agag, Agag was also a name of a king in another book in the Bible, in 1 Samuel, uh, of the Amalekites, whom Saul had that battle with that you're referring to, that the movie picks up on. So it is connecting some dots here, but it's making a lot of assumptions on how it connects those dots. So first of all, about the Amalekites, just very briefly, there's actually no historical or even textual evidence in the Bible that the Amalekites specifically were child sacrificers. Like you said, child sacrifice did happen in the ancient world, probably in some cultures today too. It's a horrible thing. And it is talked about at places in the, in the, in the Bible as something that is evil and detestable, but uh, there's no reference to the Amalekites specifically doing that. I think, I think the movie sets it up that way in order to very quickly get the audience to side with Israel against the Amalekites. So it's an emotional ploy, which which movies do all the time. So there's nothing disingenuous about it, but there's but historically there's no evidence the Amalekites specifically were child sacrifices. But the Amalekites are regarded as sort of the most ancient peoples in the land that was promised to Israel that they came to later. They are and and they were Israel's sort of oldest enemy. When Israel came out of Egypt as slaves and were being led through the wilderness up toward the promised land, 
the Amalekites as sort of the oldest peoples in the land came out and were the first to attack them and to try to destroy them in the desert. So that's sort of the backdrop to this sort of us or them kind of tension, which which plays in then to the historical record in 1 Samuel of Saul's battle with the Amalekites. But it's a whole assumption that that has anything to do with the Esther movie, because Esther as a book never mentions the Amalekites. And in fact, Agag is probably, scholars think that it's probably not the name of a person, but it's a throne name, like Pharaoh is a throne name, or Caesar uh, is a throne name. There, are a lot, there, there was one Caesar, but then there's lots of Caesars after him. Similarly, Agag is probably the name of the throne name. So, so really what the book of Esther is doing is simply by saying that Haman is an Agagite. It's just playing off the fact that, okay, he is part of this lineage of Israel's most ancient enemy. And that's probably all it's doing. It's just, just saying he represents the animosity of all these foreign nations that have for generations been trying to stamp out and destroy and annihilate this people. And so he is connected to the most ancient of peoples with that vendetta to destroy Israel, to just capture that idea that this is an embodiment of Israel's history of fighting against enemies, which actually the movie picks up in a very kind of gratuitous and and and, and completely inaccurate, but interesting way by making his symbol a swastika. You know, <laughs> Haman's symbol is not a swastika. That is a huge, but that's, that's sort of the modern approach to the same thing of saying, this is someone who represents this long historic effort to stamp out this people. It's, yeah, it sounds like the movie is using some more modern symbolism to basically set up good guys and bad guys type yeah. concept and, and cool. to help the audience quickly yeah. tie in to know which is which in the movie we do see some flashbacks of hadassah as a child with her parents during kind of the main timeline of the movie though she's living with mordecai do we know what happened to her parents and why she was living with mordecai her uncle uh, we do not all we know is that her mother and father died when she was young and that when her parents died the text says mordecai uh, took her in as his own daughter but, and this, this is a common misunderstanding that the movie picks up on, because Mordecai takes her in as his daughter, the assumption is he was an uncle. But actually, the text says that he was her cousin, that oh. uh, Esther was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle, meaning they were cousins. Oh. But obviously, there was enough of an age difference that Mordecai takes her as a daughter. That's the way the text describes it. Uh, but technically, he was an older cousin. Oh, okay. But we don't know anything about the parents or their background. Hmm. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And... It couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. 
you can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under Podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under Podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, going back to the movie, we see King Xerxes has this feast, and he sends for Queen Vashti. She refuses says she's a queen, not a pawn. She's not going to lower her dignity to stand before him because he's been partying and he's drunk and it's it, it's a thinly veiled war council according to the movie. So then following what the movie calls the protocol of the land, Xerxes then declares that there is no more queen since she's not she's refusing his word basically. And then a search is launched for every maiden to be considered, the choices of whom are going to be brought from across the empire into the palace. Is that a pretty accurate depiction of what really happened? Um, so there are several layers here to <laughs> sort out. Um, Sensing a theme here. <laughs> exactly. It, it's drawing off and interpreting it. But um, so first of all, and, and this is one of my concerns with the movie, and this is common in Hollywood. It's one of my concerns with the movies across the board. So I'm not just picking on this one. I really, really appreciate a piece that helps the audience to enter into the story's history. But that's really hard to do. It's a whole lot easier to bring the story into our history with our cultural interests and values. That's a whole lot easier to do. And frankly, it really can galvanize the audience for the causes that the movie makers want you to support. And that may be where I have kind of a political concern with this movie, if I can put it that way, that the whole backdrop of the Greeks is nowhere in the story of Esther. Hmm. It is true. Ahasuerus, uh, which is the name that's used in the text for the king, that's the Hebrew attempt to pronounce the Persian name, which the Greeks attempted to pronounce as Xerxes. So Xerxes is the Greek pronunciation. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew pronunciation. Both tie back to the same Persian name, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce. It's a mouthful. <laughs> so yes, this probably is. We're, we're pretty confident it is Xerxes that's being talked about here. And yes, after Darius fought with the Greeks. Xerxes later took up the mantle, continues fight with the Greeks in this great battle that history has come to recognize as a turning point in the expansion of the Greek empire and democratic ideals gradually throughout the world. So from now looking back, we see the battle between Persia and Greece as a great battle between 
barbarianism and civilization with democracy at its core. But that has nothing to do with the Esther story. Hmm. Esther has nothing to do with that battle. But the movie makes a big deal of pulling in that aspect of Xerxes' story and the way you remember it to suggest that the Jews are allies of democratic ideals, that the Jewish ideals and the Greek ideals coincide. Therefore, the Jews are a threat because they'll rise up with Greece. They are pro-democracy. They are democratic. They are anti-monarchy. I mean, yeah, biblical law has a whole lot to say about human values that's profound and, and really countercultural in its day. It has a lot of beautiful expressions of justice and care for the poor and the dignity of, of the, the, the downtrodden, a lot of beautiful human values. But politically, Israel was never a democracy. That, that political structure just was not a concept. It was a monarchy too just like Persia was. So this whole idea of this banquet being a thinly veiled war council and setting up the whole movie as sort of a, you know, the Jews are allies of democracy kind of worries me that the movie might have sort of this underlying effort to promote a certain American Israel political agenda mm. against the Palestinians, uh, maybe even. I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm really pro-Israel, but also pro-Palestinians. -Palest I think I think we need to have a lot of nuance in how we approach the political issues over there. And I'm nervous the movie might be trying to suggest an alliance of the Jews with hmm. Greek democracy in a way that's that's not that has nothing to do with the biblical story, but something that's maybe on the heart of the authors of the book or the movie. So anyway, so there was no war council. There was no all this discussion about fighting with the Greeks and all that had nothing to it. Rather, uh, Hasuerus had just come to the throne, and in his third year on the throne, he throws his his big celebration, which is very typical. You know, when you rise on the throne towards the end of one year, that's the first year. During your first full year on the throne, your second year, you're just solidifying your control. You're setting up your own court. You're stomping down rebels that that lure, that take the opportunity of a change in power to try to see it. So the third year is when you've secured your reign and this big feast celebrates that reign. And that's kind of how it's all all set up. And yeah, and then it and then all his feasting and display of his glory culminates with his bringing Vashti to uh, show her beauty and she rebels and that kind of sets the context for Esther to rise in. Now, I'm sorry, this is a long answer, no, but man. if if I can, I think this is a point to maybe draw something else in the book that the movie misses, but that I think is critical to understanding the story of Esther. A lot of people don't realize it, but the book of Esther is actually a comedy. Huh. It's a satire. Would not have guessed that from the um, <laughs> Yeah. And, and and that's kind of the whole and the way it starts is if you it it I mean, here's this this king showing off all his glory. He's got a six month long feast, and then the last week or month or however long it is, he has the entire you know city all participate and uh 
and the grandeur's all set up, and he's got all these funny named courtiers that are all around him, showing his power and everything. And he's going to show off all his glory with the final culmination being the showing off the beauty of his queen. And then she doesn't come and humiliates him before everyone. And and that starts the whole movie, which or the whole book, sorry, which which really throughout the whole book, the king never makes a decision on his own. All these courtiers are making decisions for him. He's kind of a buffoon character and the courtiers make all these decisions for him. He doesn't really know what's going on. And it ends up being this woman who humiliates him at the beginning of the movie. And then another woman who gains control and is the, you know, the powerful leader who actually saves her people at the end of the, at the end of the book. I keep saying movie. I would love to see Hollywood create a satire out of this story. And that would really be more true to the book and how it's told and all the, uh, the, the, the way that it unfolds, beginning with uh, this great king being humiliated by, which in the culture is very funny, you know, a woman unseating him, you know? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think you, ma- you make a great point of like um, setting in modern times, you know, if we're looking back on this, you know, as Xerxes the Great and there was, you know, this big uh, change in, in history and it wouldn't really play into that storyline to cast him as some sort of a buffoon that all of his courtiers are the ones making the decisions. Like he's supposed to be this great leader that changed the course yeah. of history. Yeah. And I'm sure that obviously he was a very powerful king but so this this is you know the place of satire you think of you know mocking when you're just mocking someone just to be cruel that's wrong you know bullying mocking making fun of people that's just wrong but there is a place for satire nobly done when you are an oppressed people you are downtrodden like the jews were in persia you are oppressed you have no hope you have no rights, you have no power, and here is this powerful oppressor over you. Satire is a source of hope. Mm. It's a source of, of relief to, I mean, we see it in, in, in our, our late night comedy, you know, when we feel hopeless about our government and what it's doing, where do we turn? Late night comedy, which satires yeah. and helps us remember they're human too. They're a bunch of buffoons, just like we are. You know, it gives a sense of relief. And as a book of faith, what the book of Esther is really doing is it's assuring the people of God that though they look so powerful, though they are oppressing you, know that there's a God of justice who is greater even than Xerxes. And Xerxes is a fool who will fall to his own folly. So satire is a source of hope for people in oppression and suffering. And that's what makes the book of Esther really a beautiful and very valuable book. And it would be great if a movie like this could bring that out in a way that really communicates that sense of hope to oppressed peoples today. You mentioned you mentioned Esther, and since obviously the movie's about her, but so far at this point in the movie, she's not named Esther, she's Hadassah. Mm. And there is a declaration, you know, we mentioned all, rounding up all the women to be candidates for queen. And then there's a scene where we see Mordecai is, is comforting her because she's one of the ones that's going to be um, called. And it's not likely they're going to come for her. But if she is, then he says that, you know, she should forget that she's a Jew. Mordecai says Hadassah is too Jewish of a name. And then he kind of seems to pick a name out of thin air, Esther. 
Sounds like a good Babylonian name, Esther of Susa. And, but, you know, only use that if you're taken. And then, of course, a few seconds later in the movie, she's taken. Is that how Hadassah became Esther? So that is, of course, an interpretation of how that conversation may have gone. We don't know how the conversation went. But yes, they got it right here. I'll give them credit. (laughs) Uh, Hadassah's cousin, uh, who had taken her in as his daughter, Mordecai, instructed her to adopt this new name, Esther, to hide her Jewish identity. That's one of the themes of the movie. Uh, of the book, sorry. Uh, and well, the movie also brings it up too, I guess. But one of the themes of the book is this idea of when you are an oppressed people living in a land that despises you, do you hide your identity or do you own it? And that's part of the tension is Esther, her under cousin's instruction, hides her identity as a Jew, takes the name Esther, but then that crisis point comes where she's got to decide who are my people. And that's sort of the crisis question that the book confronts us all with. Will we be true? Will we own our identity and our people? And that's what Esther finally makes that decision to do and uh, comes forth in great courage and great risk and delivers her people by, by no longer hiding behind the name Esther but identifying herself as Hadassah, which is a very beautiful name. I, I love that name, Hadassah. It, 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 it's Hebrew for myrtle, like a myrtle tree. Oh. Uh, it's a pretty name. Okay, yeah, yeah. If we go back to the movie, the candidates for queen are given access to the royal treasury, and we see um, Haggai, the royal eunuch, is charged with their training. And he explains that whatever the candidate chooses for their one night with the king will be theirs for the keeping. All the other women are starting to look at, you know, beautiful jewels and the things in the treasury. And then Esther tells Haggai, doesn't matter what impresses her or doesn't matter what impresses me from her perspective, what impresses the king? And then she asks if he'll teach her. So he agrees and he gives her a necklace and says, this is something that the king will find most pleasing. How much of that happened? which also coincidentally in the movie happens to be the necklace that was torn off her neck when she was first taken. So it's kind of giving back to her the necklace of her grandmother, which is kind of a ironic, um, a lot, a lot of suspension of belief there. So, you know, there's, there's actually a classic movie trope. I can't think of any examples specific off the top of my head, but, you know, you can imagine a scene where someone, you know, uh, a European moves into a, a third world setting and they give this outsider a black stone and he thinks he's being honored, but has no idea that he's really being marked out for death. You know, misunderstanding the symbols and reversing it, that kind of thing. I think that's innocently what the movie producers or novel authors did in this setting because. The text does say that when Esther was given the opportunity to ask for whatever she wanted, they weren't necessarily taken into treasury, but yes, each of the women were allowed, you know, if someone played music, they could get a harp to sing or, you know, whatever, you know, they could ask whatever they wanted to take for the night with the king. And the way the book tells the story is that Esther only took what she was told to take. She did not. T- she did not ask for advice, and it just took what she was told. The movie writers have taken that little line, and I think misunderstood it in the opposite. 
they understand it as, okay, so she's not asking for what to take. She's just relying on their advice because she wants to please the king. And so she wants their advice. But that's the opposite of what the text is actually saying. What the text is actually saying is that she didn't want to please the king. Remember what's going on here. This is a horrible, horrible thing. This movie, in addition to the kind of democracy side of it, um, the other thing that really troubles me by it is it turns it into a romance story. This is not a romance. This is a satire. This is a spoof of the gross greed and lust that often go along with oppressive power. And here's the embodiment of it. This Persian ruler who, who, who you know, the, not only the Book of Esther, but uh, Greek historians, ancient Greek historians also spoofed Persian lust by talking about how these kings had a different woman for every night of the year. Mm. You know, I'm sure that's exaggeration, but the point is the Greeks, ancient Greek authors, as well as Hebrew authors are all satiring the lust and wealth of these rulers who think they are gods among men. And so the book of Esther is not telling a romance story. Esther's not going in saying, oh, you tell me what I should take to please the king. No, it's showing her that she's just passively being pushed along. She's not wanting to be here. She's not trying to please the king. So she only takes what she's told to take. I think the movie has grossly reversed the implication of that line in the book. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And um, it's it was something that I was, as I was watching, you know, I mean, the very beginning of the movie, it's, um, you know, this, this thing is happening and you can tell that Esther or Hadassah at that point doesn't want to be taken. But then when she does, it, it does kind of spin around. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to be taken. So I guess I want to please the king. It, it did just kind of seem like, um, why is, why is this being portrayed as a, as a romance? Like why, why is it something that she's wanting to go along with this? Yeah. 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 And who knows, who knows what became of their marriage? I mean, obviously, when she came in later to approach his throne, he respected her at least enough to extend his scepter. But we often impose our modern ideals of marriage, many of which are good, but not all of which are good. But nonetheless, we tend to impose those on other sides. And remember, this is a royal marriage. Usually, you know, a Persian emperor, he's got his concubines, he's got all the women he wants. The point of having a queen is to produce legitimate heirs, not to provide a partner, mm. a soulmate. That's that's not what a queen needs to be. I'm sure sometimes it was, but that's not what this was about. This king was just looking for who's going to be his queen that will produce good, healthy you know, good-looking, strong heirs, legitimate heirs. Concubines produce all kinds of courtiers, but the legitimate heirs come from the queen. That's kind of the main point of, of, of what he's looking for here. So this whole romance thing, who knows? Maybe something did come of the marriage, but we have no idea. And, and the book's certainly not telling a romance story. The movie paints a picture of Esther as being a woman who can read in multiple languages. She doesn't seem to be impressed with any of the material stuff, the beauty treatments that they're they're giving, all that stuff that kind of comes with being in a royal palace. Um, but her knowledge even led uh, to Haggai giving her the chance to read for the king, not as a candidate, but as a servant. 
And it's something that the movie doesn't show any of the other women doing and kind of helps her stand apart. How well did the movie do showing how Esther was different or maybe treated differently than some of the other candidates? So the book does kind of portray her as standing out, you know, that, that she gained favor, that uh, Haggai put her in kind of a favored apartment and, um, and that the king obviously loved her most and made her his queen. So she was favored, but it doesn't ever really tell us, apart from her beauty, you know, what attributes she may have had. I doubt that she could read. There's no evidence she could read. I mean, literacy rates were pretty low in the ancient Persian Empire. And for an enslaved, oppressed people, particularly, there's not going to be like schools and so forth. She was very wise. I mean, the, the book definitely upholds her wisdom, but there's no indication that she could read. This is another place where the I think what the movie does is it takes a few dots out of the book and creates its own pattern out of it for the sake of its own storytelling arc. There's one place in the book of Esther where there's mention of reading the Chronicles at night to the king. The king can't sleep one night. Um, so the books of the Chronicles are brought and read to him, commonly repeated, and the movie repeats that this is somehow done to bore the king and lull him to sleep. That's not the reason. But there is one point where he needed to consult the Chronicles in the middle of the night. So they're read to him in the middle of the night. And uh, so the authors have sort of taken that little tidbit out of the story and suggested maybe Esther is reading them. And I think the reason they're doing it is because, again, they're wanting to play to modern cultural ideals of loving a woman for her intelligence, not just for her good looks which is a great message. It's really important to appreciate people for who they are, not just for their appearance. So I commend that writers of the movie hold that value, but that's not you know, what's in the book of Esther. She was a very wise woman, but that's not what the king was looking for. And it was her beauty that he selected her for, which again is part of what's being satired as wrong and horrible. Yeah, it kind of goes back to some of the things that uh, you mentioned before, where, it, you know, the difference between society today and the society mm -hmm. then just being so different. It, I mean, I guess it, in that way, if they had actually made made it a lot more realistic to the way society was then, it would, I mean, it would be extremely appalling and not the kind of thing that anybody would want to watch as entertainment in a movie. Yeah, it's 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 hard to, and as I said earlier, I respect movie producers for the difficulty it is to take an audience into history. It's so much easier to bring history to an audience, and so that's what our movies almost always do. Yeah. Well, talk, speaking of of Esther being able to read in the movie, when it is time for her one night with the king he recognizes her from when she read the scroll and went on to tell the story of Jacob and Rachel. And then only a few minutes into their conversation, Esther says, the only thing that she would accept from the King is his heart. And he says, then it is yours, you know, his profession of love. As I was watching the movie, I, I mean, I, I just couldn't help but think, okay, this is happening super fast. She didn't even need to spend the one night with the King title, title of the movie. She only really needed a couple of minutes because, you know, she had already established this relationship 
in a lot of movies, compressed timelines. And uh, you, you alluded earlier, you know, maybe we don't even really know if there was love, but did this happen as fast as the movie makes it seem? So a uh, yes and no, as we've discussed and you yourself kind of brought out there, romance didn't happen that fast. Romance doesn't happen that fast. And yeah, so that's, that did not happen that fast. But yes, the book does say, and the movie is right, that it just was one night and he chose her as the story is told. Again, it could be that the book itself is compressing things. But again, what's the king looking for? He's looking for someone to produce his heirs. He's not necessarily looking for his favorite sexual partner. He can he he's not limited to his queen when it comes to anything except who are going to be his legitimate heirs. Mm. So something in Esther's beauty, her strength, that he thought I'm, I'm going to say it as crassly as it horribly is, that makes her good breeding stock. You know, it, it could be as simple as that. And so yes, the way the be- the way the movie tells it is she came in for her night, and that night he loved her more than all the other women. And she found favor in his eyes and he set the crown upon her head. Now, what does that attachment mean? I, I don't think we should read too much into that expression. He loved her more than all the other women. It means that whatever he was measuring them for, she was the one that he said, yes, this is it. And he made his decision and made her his queen. Now, maybe he grew to respect her later in the story. There's certainly indication that he did respect her and to some extent that he extended the scepter and and heard out her request but that took time and we don't know how that all unfolded or even whether there was ever romance or what we would call you know a, a genuine love story in this the book of esther is not a model for romance don't use this as a model for a good marriage <laughs> at all well maybe i did, so but the book does mention the word love and so maybe there was some yes. sort of a misinterpretation the text, there, you think? And the text uses the word love, okay. but not necessarily but like romantic love, own, but yeah, in our own context, you know, that, that can mean a lot of things. And and the, the 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 book of Esther is 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 very delicately written. I mean, it's a masterpiece of literature. It's it's full of satire, it's full of irony, it's confronting and being very honest about the horrible things happening but it's also very delicately written. So yes, it does say um, that when she went, she was taken to him. That's the language used, which is an idiom for, yeah, she spent the night with the king. It was consummated. It happened. The movie kind of suggests it never happened, but yeah, she was royally raped and then selected Mm. to be the queen uh, out of that. The book is very delicate in how it says it, but it, it makes clear how that 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 it did happen it did happen yeah Uh, according to the movie Haman devises a plot where he wants to take over the house and wealth of prince Edmantha. then once he has a position of power he suggests to king xerxes that all the jews must be killed so they can confiscate all their belongings and use that to fund new ships and this plan was to be carried out on the 13th day of the month of adar how well did the movie do showing this plot of Haman's against the Jews? So um, Admatha is one of the names in one of the early lists of courtiers around the king. All we have is 
there, there's like two lists of like princes and courtiers and they both have seven names in each. So it's kind of symbolic lists, just again, to, to paint the scene of this king with all his courtiers and all his wealth and so forth. So the movie has invented this whole backstory out of a, a, a real name there. Secondly, there was a plot to assassinate the king. That's told a little later in the story. There was an effort by two of the eunuchs to kill the king. We don't know why. We just know that they were discussing it while in the gate area, which is where Mordecai was working as a scribe. That's one thing the movie got right that a lot of people miss, but I thought, man, kudos to them. Uh, Mordecai is identified in the book as one of the scribal officials working in the gate area of the palace complex. So he was there and he overheard the plot. So that also is part of the book. And then also the, the storyline does in the timeline say that it was after those things happened, after the plot was exposed, just in a sequence of time, not necessarily connected as an event, but in a sequence of time, it was after that, that Haman first becomes introduced into the story and is appointed as the second in command to the king, as his vizier, his prime minister of the king. So the, the authors are taking these three points, this name Edmatha, this existence of a plot to assassinate the king, which Mordecai overhears and exposes, and then the rise of Haman, and they're creating a story out of it. Okay. But the story is not anywhere in the book. We don't know anything about any effort of Haman to unseat Admatha. We have no suggestion that Admatha was that, you know, previously in that place, uh, he wasn't. So they do an interesting job of stitching together these actual pieces from the story to create uh, a further backstory. But yeah, Haman, at the heart of your question, Haman was plotting to destroy the Jews. And the movie kind of endeavors to bring that out in its own creative way. It does uh, the some of the motivation behind the plot, at least according to the movie, kind of ties back to the very beginning of the movie with the killing of King Agag. Was that actually his motivation? The movie kind of suggests that he's exacting revenge on the Jews on behalf of his forefathers, suggesting that you know that yeah. he's lineage through there. So I think this is part of the artistry of the book. Sometimes when you're creating a story that's designed to be a template. It's designed to be a story that you can take to heart and apply in your own setting. It will deliberately leave certain details out to make it transferable. Mm. There's no motive ascribed to Haman. We don't know why he hates the Jews so much. He's just one of those Agagites, using the term to mean like the ancient lineage of all those who have tried to destroy the Jews. So the movie is saying, okay, What's his motive? Let's use what little dots we can and try to give him a motive. But I think that's a disservice. We don't know, and then we don't need to know. The point is this represents just that hatred that seeks to destroy. And yes, he did go to the king and say, listen, I've calculated that if we destroy the Jews, we can take their wealth and it will bring 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury. But it wasn't to build ships or anything like that. The way the story is told, Haman hates and wants to kill the Jews, and he preys upon the king's greed. Again, mm. spoofing the buffoonery of kings, that they're blind to the horror of what's happening 
because Haman comes along and flashes some silver coins and says, hey, listen, I've got this plan and it's going to make you rich. And suddenly the king's on board. He's doing foolish things, unwise things, horrible things out of his greed. How manipulate, how easily we manipulate rulers when you give them women and money, you know, that's kind of what the story is doing. And Haman's the mastermind with this desire to destroy the Jews, but it never tells us why. Yeah. It sounds like they're, the movie is filling in a lot of those details because, you know, maybe, um, you know, in the ancient times, it was okay to not know some of those things, leave it vague. But these days we really want to know all those details and, and, and That's not, right. you know, so kind of filling in some of those, uh, plot points the, you that's know, right those holes that's making right. that up in the movie king xerxes asks Haman for assistance in how to honor someone who has been of assistance to him and that includes you know saving his life Haman seems to think of that it's him that the king is wanting to honor you know they, he's talking about and he gives this long list of things that he should do you know a, a royal robe a horse a, a royal crest parading through the streets with the noblest of princes a proclamation you know thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor and of course haman is giving all these recommendations just thinking oh, he the king's going to do this to me but he's not uh, he hates this when he finds out that the man the king's going to do this to was not Haman, but Mordecai. Hmm. Did that yeah. happen? That story is the hinge point in the book. Part of its literary structure is it tells a story built around 10 feasts. And there are five feasts at the beginning, and then there are five feasts at the end. And in the center, there's a fast where Esther asks all the Jews to fast. And this story takes place at that center point where Esther hosts those feasts and they're, you know, Esther sees it. So it's, it's kind of this, this whole structure to the book that centers on this night and the fast that leads up to it. And then the feast that Esther prepares out of it. And this story you've just referenced that night is the turning point. And it's one of the most hilarious riotous parts of the whole book. I mean, it's Shakespearean in its comedy of errors. If you can just appreciate it. I mean, here you have on the same night, you know, after Esther goes into the king, he extends the scepter, and she says, my request is that you and Haman would join me for a banquet. And they have this banquet, and then Esther's like, my request is that you come for another banquet. And so Haman's getting really excited, and the king is really confused. And that night, Haman is boasting in his excitement. I'm being hosted at these banquets, the king and the queen. But Mordecai won't bow, bow to me. He's, he's my one irritant in this moment of my joy. And so his wife suggests him, well, then crush Mordecai. Let's kill him. Go into the king and ask for his execution so you can go to the next banquet happy. That very same night, the king can't sleep. He is, his conscience is bothered. Something isn't right. There's something that's been left undone. That's why he calls for the chronicles to be read for him. What is it that I'm supposed to do that I haven't done that's not been taken care of? And they find, ah, Mordecai saved your life and he's never been honored. And so he, so the same night, Haman is plotting to, out of his hatred for Mordecai and the king is full of gratitude for Mordecai. And they both converge on the royal court the next morning to decide what to do with Mordecai. And so the king asks Haman, what should I do with someone who I really want to highly honor, 
Heyman thinks, ah, oh, that's got to be me. <laughs> and so it's the most hilarious turn of events that he gives the idea for how he wants to be honored. And then he has to turn around and do that to Mordecai instead of having him killed. It's a comedy of errors, just like Shakespeare would do, and forms the, the crux point of the book. How did it all unfold literally in history? As is the way with satire, you've got to have real events you're working with. Well, I mean, satire could be totally fiction, but when you're doing historical satire, you've got to have real events you're working with, but you, you highlight and you bring things out in order to emphasize the comedy that really is present in life. A good comedian brings out the comedy that's really there, but by the way you tell the story to really heighten it. And this, this book does a masterful job of, of heightening the, the irony of this hilarity of, 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 of power and what a, how ridiculous it is in the way it shows, in the book's view, the hand of providence, the hand of heaven's justice, bringing forth justice and undermining the stupidity of man. So it, it sounds like, to make sure I'm understanding, that you were saying that this, that night um, for the king was when he had the Chronicles read, but then the movie was kind of using that point for earlier in the timeline of the movie. So is that the same, the same uh, event that you're talking about there, the Chronicles being read? So the movie suggests that the Chronicles are read to him every night, okay. including that night. That's a misunderstanding because, again, as the movie states, the movie says, and the first time it happens, that they read the Chronicles to help him go to sleep. Okay. That's not what it's for. In, in the ancient world, again, this is, this is something we don't understand in our own culture, our own time. But in the ancient world, the thinking was that a king is the embodiment of the nation. The king is a bridge between the people and their, their deities. And so he has to live on this plane where he has oversight of the entire kingdom and understands everything that's happening. But he also lives in communion with the gods in such a way that his own conscience is sort of a meeting point of mm. the state of the kingdom and the desires of the gods. And so when a king can't sleep at night, his conscience is bothering him. It means something, not just personal, but national. Something is not right. The gods are not pleased. There's something I have to fix in order to restore balance to the kingdom, not just to get to sleep at night. So he calls for the chronicles. Let's look through the chronicles. What have we done recently that we have not properly executed justice to, 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 to satisfy heaven, as it were? And that's kind of the context in which the Chronicles will be brought and read to him on that particular night. That that's that's a fascinating. I wouldn't have thought of that as almost a. It's it sounds almost like a, you know an ancient medicinal um, aspect of you know some sort of that's a kind of the oh I can't sleep so let's find something and um, to of course that yeah. maybe that's a little little, but, but, little too you know modern. Uh, thinking in that way, but like, let's find something to fix so that we can rest better at night. You know, if you're having a tough night sleeping. And this is a prime example of it take a lot to bring an audience back into history to understand what's yeah. really happening in that story. Cause this whole idea of Kings and their kind of divine intuition, that's something that, you know, we just, 
we don't have a, a, a category for. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in my mind, the, the closest thing I can think of when I'm, you know, thinking of, oh, if I'm having a hard time sleeping and, you know, there's just something that's kind of ra- my mind is racing, it does help to write it down or, you know, to, to get it out of my mind so that then I can, I can yeah. be at peace and, and get some sleep. And so it sounds like completely different purpose, <laughs> you know, but, exactly. but a similar and, and, concept. And, and, and you've just illustrated beautifully the challenge of, of retelling a story because we read the story and say, okay, they read the Chronicles to him at night. Why would I do that? Mm, yeah. Here's why I would do that. And so I read that into the story. And that's, that's part of the trick of, of a good historian and a historical retelling is to bring out the symbols of the text with their own cultural meaning rather than just what they would mean to us if we right. were to do that. If we go back to the movie's timeline, uh, Xerxes is about to leave for the military campaign in Greece that they had referenced earlier that leaves Haman as regent, and there's no time left. Uh, Haman is going to enact the edict that will annihilate the Jews. So Esther risks her own life by breaking protocol and going before the king without being summoned. She runs through the rain, shows up in the hall of the king, drenched to beg for the lives of the jewels, a juice, I should say. And at least according to the movie, it works. Xerxes lowers his scepter. It's an indication to spare Esther's life for breaking protocol. Then later Esther is in the room with Xerxes and Haman, and she tells the king of her people, and she begs for their lives. And that's when she reveals she is Hadassah daughter of the tribe of Benjamin. How accurate was the movie's depiction of Esther's plea before Xerxes? The ultimate outcome was correct. <laughs> um, and obviously, again, they're working with the, uh, the, the same basic elements, but it, it's, I, I, I would love to sometimes sit down with a, um, a script writer just to better understand how they turn a book into a script. Cause I know it's telling a movie on screen is very different than in a book. And there's gotta be a lot of changes that are made. And I don't know which ones have to be made and which ones don't, but this is obviously a place where they've done a lot to bring out the drama on screen that they felt accurately. They felt accurately portrays the drama of the book, but it takes a lot of liberties with the book to do it. There was no rain that night. The book didn't describe any rain. She came in her full royal regalia. Uh, There was no war looming. uh, You know, there weren't, you know, he wasn't about to leave to go to war. Haman was not about to take over as regent. He was just vizier, vice, you know, the uh, prime minister of the king. She just wanted to stop this edict from going into effect uh, to destroy her people and courageously decided, here's the moment where I am going to reveal my identity and plea on behalf of my people for the king. And so she took that courageous step, which, which really in the poetry of the book is an echo of Vashti in reverse. Vashti refused to come when mm. summoned by the king and was banished for it. Esther is coming unsummoned to the king. Mm. Will she die? It's really a, I mean, the, the story of those two women in in echo in the book is really quite quite powerful and so she went and he extended the scepter now that that's a powerful act in itself 
you know, even in our day, when a head of state meets with someone, a foreign dignitary, they don't just meet without things being worked out ahead of time. You know, we know what they're coming for. We know what the request is. We know what we can offer. There's kind of all this plan goes ahead of time, and then they meet to kind of seal the deal. Well, the king hears requests, and to come in unsummoned with a request is a great affront to the king. It's potentially an embarrassment, and it's disrespectful. But by extending the scepter, he's saying, I accept you. But by doing so, the implication is that he is going to accept your request as well. And he even says to her, tell me what you want up to half the kingdom and I will do it for you. I mean, that's that's why it's so risky for him and so risky for her. Therefore, will he extend the scepter? Because by doing so, he is extending favor to this person who's coming unbidden and their request. Mm. So there's every reason for him to say, I don't know what in the world this woman is here for. <laughs> and I'm not just going to write her a blank check. You know, sorry, woman, I'll go find another queen, you know, but no. However, it unfolded. The book kind of just leads us to recognize this is the providence of God working out heaven's justice in the midst, even through the hands of buffoons like this king. He does extend his scepter and offers to hear out and to grant her request. And she, in a way that just builds up the drama and prepares him for the significance of the request. That's part of the reason here. Preparing for the significance of the request says, my request is that you come to a banquet where I'll tell you my real request. And then at that banquet, again, there are two banquets. The movie just shortens it all into one. My request is you come to another banquet tomorrow night. Um, and then at that banquet is where she reveals my request is for my life and the life of my people. And by that point, the king's question in the book is, who has threatened your life? And she says, this wicked Haman. Wow. It's a powerful moment in the book. I think the movie, I'm sorry, it just makes a mess of it by suggesting that the king doubts Esther at that moment, that he goes out. You know, there was this thing with the, the, the necklace and they didn't see the stars and so sort of doubting her identity and this Jewish concern and Haman is choking her in the movie yeah. because he seems victorious. The book, totally different. The book describes Haman as cowering in fear and the king rising in rage at this moment when Esther has identified what's been done. Because remember the way the story is told in the book, Haman plots her death, but distracts the king with all these 10,000 talents of silver, you know, and Hadassah, Esther is the one who exposes to the king the true horror of what he has done and gets him to see the horror of it so that he is in rage. And the way the book tells it, Haman falls on, on, the, on the, the couch, the seat where Esther is seated, pleading for his life. And that's when the king accuses him of even assaulting the queen. Mm. And they, they put a bag over his head and take him out to, to kill him and put him up on the same post that he had built for Mordecai. Again, yeah. the poetic justice here. But yeah, so 
outcome is the same, but the process is a little bit different in the book yeah. than the way the movie unfolds it. And yeah. I, I think they lost a real great potential for drama in, in the way they changed it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, grabbing, there are some mentions that sound like it's sim like they're, they're pulling little pieces there. You know, the, the assault, the, I think they don't mention the, the gallows where Haman was making those to hang Mordecai and then, you know, Xerxes orders Haman to be hung on them instead what happened so kind of at the end of the story in the movie that all happens and then the the jews are saved and mordecai is appointed a prince haman is hung on on the gallows as we mentioned um esther kind of uh, you, you get the idea that xerxes uh, defends esther and of course in the movie you know they imply there's this great you know love and and all that there um how well did the movie do showing kind of the end of esther's story and how how it wrapped up at the end so one other just little historical nuance that I'll just because you mentioned the gallows there. The movie does talk about the gallows. That's a common understanding of what Haman was building. But hanging by the neck and gallows are a European invention many centuries later. That's not something that was done in the ancient world. Rather, what the what what Haman was wanting to do, he built a 50 cubit tall post is really what the text says a post to hang him on so we sometimes interpret that i mean oh it must be like a gallows but what it means is they would execute mordecai and then uh, impale his corpse on this post for everyone to see in order to wow. demonstrate this is what happens when you cross me and to shame that criminal that's being impaled like that so that's really what's being described and so haman is really getting poetic justice when he ends up being the one executed and impaled on the very post that he was seeking to have uh, Mordecai impaled upon. That's just a little 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 historical tidbit there, in, in, in the way the movie portrays it. But but the, you know the the final comedy of the twist is is portrayed rightly in the movie. Mordecai is now this takes Haman's seat, also takes Haman's house while Haman gets Mordecai's post. And then Mordecai, uh, with Esther's ratification, sends out an edict to pronounce this festival of Purim, which is just sort of mentioned in the movie. But that's actually the whole purpose of the book. The whole purpose of the book is it's building up to this festival of Purim, which is an annual celebration of heaven's justice mm. unseating buffoonery wealth and lust driven human oppressors i mean that's the whole kind of point of this book is to build up to that festival to every year celebrate and remember um this this book that gives us hope in a time of suffering and oppression so the, the movie brings out those details but it almost brings them out as sort of oh just wrap up the story rather than realizing this is kind of the climax this is kind of what the story is all about the story yeah <laughs> Not just little dots because because, yeah. because they turned it into a romance and they right. missed the real beauty of this is a book to satire human oppression and to give us hope in heaven's justice in the midst of our sorrows. Wow. Uh, I mean, it sounds like the movie it me messed up the storyline a lot, but overall, how do you think the movie did kind of capturing the essence of that time period with the, the look, the sights, the sound, that, that sort of thing? Of course, like we said several times, bringing the audience into history is very difficult. But I don't 
think that was really what they were trying to do. I I think as a movie, you know, as as a historical piece, they didn't do well at all in portraying ancient history. I think I've established that already. But as a movie, I thought artistically they did a the way they used drapes and kind of all these drapes everywhere. I thought it it had you know it created a nice effect, the feel of sort of what we imagine as kind of you know the ancient Near East and Persian beauty and and so forth. So as an impressive piece of arc, that is impressionistic piece of arc, I think they they did well at portraying that feeling. But uh, yeah, but it's it's definitely not capturing the history itself. Yeah, yeah. Sp- speaking of history, if there's was there something from Mistorian history that you really wish had been in the movie that they didn't even touch on? Well, they did touch on, you know, in the beginning of the movie, Hadassah is kind of hanging on Mordecai like a little girl on her dad saying, you know, can I please go to uh, Jerusalem to see the temple and all that. That was a nice allusion to the fact that this is happening after uh, a remnant of the Jews had left Persia to go back and rebuild the temple. It would be interesting if the the book, instead of the Amalekite backdrop that it starts with, which is not, you know, really relevant to the the story, if they had instead opened with maybe the Babylonian conquest of of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple a couple of generations before. And then the Persian rise to power, conquering Babylon and Persia, sending back a remnant uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But these dispersed Jews that are still living throughout the Persian Empire, living in places where they don't have a temple, don't have synagogues or anything like that. Because that that really is, again, talk about the artistry of the book. The book of Esther is one of the most unique books in the whole. Well, it is the most unique book. It is unique in the whole Bible. It is unusual in this respect. It is the only book in the entire Bible that never mentions the name of God once. Mm. It never even mentions God. But that's part of the artistry of the book because it's written for people who are living in a society where there is no temple. Unlike back in Jerusalem, there is no synagogue. We are uh, living on the margins, oppressed, hated. Is God even here? And the book is very artistically sort of giving you the experience of being in a place where God is not heard, God is not mentioned, God is not known, and yet his justice, his redemption, his deliverance is beautifully and powerfully experienced, even overthrowing someone as powerful as Xerxes. So it would, I think it would have helped the story if, if in terms of history, it had opened up with some reference to the Babylonian conquest and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but then brought us back to those still living under Persian oppression in a place far from the temple. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because the, the movie kind of implies it's it's talking about the survival of all of the Jews, and it doesn't give you a lot of around, a lot of context around that. But it gives at least when I was watching the movie, it kind of gave me the impression that all the Jews were in Persia at that time. But it sounds like that's not necessarily the case. Right. Well, all the Jews were under Persian dominion because Jerusalem at that time was un- was a Persian okay. province, if you will. And it talks about the 127 provinces. That's sort of a just a big number to give the idea of the vast reign from 
Ethiopia to India, you know, over the stretches of the known world. And yeah, again, as part of the artistry of the book, it's talking in sweeping terms and and riders going to all corners of the empire to deliver these edicts to destroy the Jews, you know, whether every single Jew in every corner of the empire, you know, is going to actually be annihilated. The point of the story is to communicate the severity of it by giving that sentiment. You mentioned the, uh, the necklace that Esther has. You see the, when light shines on at the star, David reflects out. Yes. Is there any truth to that? I mean, was that a thing? Does, do we know anything about that, that specific necklace? I have never heard of anything like that. I think it's an imaginative, you know, I think, I think the, the movie is taking and giving Haman the swastika and mm. giving Esther the star of David as kind of to help us connect with those in our modern sentiments. I mean, the star of David, it's called the star of David, but I think it's a fairly recent invention. I mean, by, by, you know, recent centuries, uh, I'm an ancient Near East historian. So recent to me is several centuries. Ago. So it, it's, it's a fairly recent invention, meaning I don't, it's, it's not from biblical times. It's not something that David himself mm-hmm. had on his crest or anything. So it's not something that Esther would have, you know, had or known of. Uh, but the movie is, you know, using this necklace to portray one symbol and using the pendant of Haman mm. to portray another, I think, to help a modern audience identify. Uh, yeah, I get another e- good versus evil, uh, making it easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I have to ask, um, with Xerxes, right? So when I, when I think of Xerxes, and, and they kind of set this up, you know, he's, he's having a season of fasting. And um, we talked about this earlier. It's, you know, kind of the stalling the decision to march on Greece. And when I think, I think of that, I just think of the story of the 300 Spartans. Is there, is there any tie into that at all? I mean, in this sort of time period. So if indeed Ahasuerus is Xerxes, which we're pretty confident that's the King that is intended by the story, then it is the same, the same Persian King. Um, And that's where the authors of the movie are, filling in cracks with other historical information that's not relevant to the book, but they are drawing on real dots and they're just inventing the way they all connect. Xerxes' father, Darius, failed to conquer Greece, was defeated at the famous Battle of Marathon, and was later killed. Xerxes himself then tried again to conquer the Greeks um, with the Battle of Thermopylae and and the, the famous 300 and all of that. And I think, I think he did do that pretty early after his ascension to the throne, not as early as the third year, but maybe mm-hmm. within the first decade. Uh, I don't know the exact timing of it. So, you know, so the, the, the writers of the movie are, are, they, they know their historical timelines yeah. and they're connecting these dots, but by doing so, they're creating a backstory that really is not part of the Book of Esther, and I think distracts from what the Book of Esther is actually trying to get at. But yeah, it is the same Xerxes from that movie or that that story. <laughs> another well, it's just <laughs> another, that movie's accurate. That's a whole other one. <laughs> I do have an episode on that. That is another one. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about One Night with the King. And before I let you go, I wanted to ask about your article for um, the Center for Hebraic Thought at King's College, it's called "The Story of Esther as Redemptive Humor in the Bible." Can you share a brief overview of that article for someone who wants to learn more about Esther's story as well as where they can find all your work? 
Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me. It's been really fun to do this. I've been looking forward to doing this with my brother. What a <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> it's great. I've been a huge fan of your uh, your podcast for a long time now. So it's great to have our our interests and uh, areas of of uh, research overlap in this this project. It's been great. Um, yeah, so I've I've taught on the Book of Esther a lot, but I've never written a, a, a book on Esther specifically. I'm I'm thinking it'd be a fun one to do someday, but I haven't haven't done that. But I did write an article uh, that you mentioned for the Center for Break Thought, and also I recorded that as a podcast. So if people are interested, the the article basically brings out the whole idea that this is ancient satire and helps to draw out and show you the humor in the book and how this works to minister hope and joy uh, to an oppressed people who have no other hope than to just laugh at the stupidity of, of human beings in power. So that, that, that's what the article does. And uh, I did record it as a podcast episode in my podcast called The Bible is Beautiful. I just think the Bible is full of all kinds of amazing literature like this that's so fun to delve into and explore whether you're religious or not. It's classic literature, extremely well written. That's why it's lasted so long. And I think it's so fun to explore this collection of, of texts. And uh, I did an episode on Esther based on that uh, article. So people who want to read can read on the internet or they could listen to the uh, podcast if they'd like to hear more about Esther from that perspective. That's that's I'll make sure to include links to that in the show notes for this episode. Thank you for coming on, Michael. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks a lot, Dan. Take care. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Dr. Lefebvre, my brother Michael, once again for sharing his knowledge about the true story behind One Night with the King. If you want to dig deeper, Michael mentioned he hasn't written a book about Esther yet, but he does have a great article called The Story of Esther as Redemptive Humor in the Bible. It's on the website for the Center for Hebraic Thought at King's College. As always, I've got a link to that in the show notes for this episode. But if you're driving or not able to get there right now, those links are also on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a quick refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, there was a huge battle between the Amalekites and the Persians in the book of Esther that we don't even see in the movie. Number two, Esther's husband Xerxes is the same king who fought the 300 Spartans. Number three, Esther was not her original name. Did you catch which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. There was a huge battle between the Amalekites and the Persians in the book of Esther that we don't even see in the movie. That's the lie. <laughs> As we learned, while the Amalekites were an ancient people, the book of Esther in the Bible that the movie is telling the story of never even mentions them. So, of course, there wouldn't have been a huge battle with them involved. That means number two is true. Esther's husband, Xerxes, is the same king who fought the 300 Spartans. While there's always going to be debates among scholars when it comes to different languages and translations and whether or not the pe different people in different languages are translated the same, as we learned, in Hebrew, the name Ahasuerus is most likely the same as the Greek Xerxes, 
which are different languages referring to the same Persian king who fought the Greeks. And that whole story of the 300 Spartans that has become famous. That means number three is also true. Esther was not her original name. As the movie correctly shows us, Esther's real name was Hadassah, and she took the name Esther to cover up her Jewish identity. If you get value out of based on a true story, you can give back whatever you feel is worth, whether it's a dollar, $100, whatever value you get out of the show, you can give back and learn how to get ad-free versions of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>